What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion here on EWTN. It's the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Do you have a question about the Catholic faith? Maybe you're having some problems getting that question answered. Maybe you just don't know who to turn to. Well, that's why we are here. It's the whole reason for this show. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code, which is 1, and then 205-271-2985. And, of course, you can always text us the address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. My advice to you, call early because it is Friday, and uh, phone lines really tend to uh, get full early in the show. So this is the time to call in. Don't wait till the bottom of the hour because you might not be able to get in. Again, the number 833-288-EWTN. Charles Beery is our producer. Uh, Matt Gabinski is our phone screener. Jeff Burson away today. I believe Ace McKay is going to be handling social. So uh, if you want to uh, ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, uh, just uh, put that in the comments box. Ace will see it. He'll shoot it to us here in the studio, and off we go. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Great. How are you? I'm doing decent. Thank you. Weekend plans for the uh, Anders clan? You know, uh, last week I was cutting the grass, and uh, my backyard is mostly crabgrass, which means that it grows rapidly, so I'll probably be cutting the crabgrass again, among other things. Yeah, my big problem this this last weekend was, uh, you know, doing the weed eating. Oh, so yeah. I'm, I'm wearing the long sleeves and the gloves, but there's a little half-inch gap between, you know, the end of the glove and the beginning of the sleeve. So that's where I got the poison ivy. Oh, I was hoping that's where you got the tan. Uh, <laughs> you got a little, little, little wristwatch tan there on your arm. That would have looked very strange. Here is a uh, great email from Rob in Beaverton, Oregon. Dear Dr. Anders, I'm still trying to understand the theological nature of Christ's presence on the altar at Mass. Is it most correct to say he is present in the Eucharist in the very same way he is present to the Father in heaven after the resurrection, the Lamb who is worthy, as Revelation describes him? Or does that description overlook a connection with his suffering on the cross that perhaps I'm missing? God bless. Rob in Beaverton, Oregon. Okay, thanks. So I I think I know what Rob is getting at, but I want to clarify the question for listeners because I think what's being asked here is a distinction that most Catholics fail to make when talking about the Eucharist. Okay. All Catholics know that the Eucharist is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. It's what we call the doctrine of the real presence, that Christ is really and truly present in the Blessed Sacrament, body, blood, soul, and divinity. All Catholics know that. I don't believe that Rob is asking about the real presence. I think he's asking a different question. He wants to know the relationship of the real presence to Christ's presence in heaven with the Father and Christ's crucifixion at Calvary. Now, this is an important point and one that I believe many people get wrong. There is a pervasive idea 
out there in Catholic land, and I found it in blog posts and internet posts and things of that sort, and sometimes in catechetical literature, that talk about the Eucharist as if the presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament were somehow transposed from Calvary 2,000 years ago, that in the act of transubstantiation, the priest, as it were, or the Holy Spirit, as it were, sort of reaches into the, into, uh, the, the ancient past, grabs Christ off the cross, and then plops him down on the altar. And that is emphatically not what the dogma of the Church teaches. I'm going to call that the time travel view of Christ's <laughs> presence. And I have actually, I have actually found uh, Catholic bloggers who use that exact language and really? will say things like, the Mass is time travel, you know. I wrote an article about it called, uh, you know, the Mass is not the TARDIS. Leave time travel <laughs> to Doctor Who. Yeah. Instead, what happens is Christ is present on the altar um, as he is right now in his proper person. And so that would be exalted at the right hand of the Father. Now, the way this comes out in the literature, Thomas Aquinas raises this question about if the apostles had celebrated Mass when Christ was in the tomb, what would have been present on the altar? And his answer is, they didn't. But if they had, you would have had Christ's uh, body, blood, and divinity, but not his human soul. Uh. Because at that moment, at the moment of that particular consecration, Christ's human soul had descended to the dead. Now, after the ascension, after the resurrection the ascension, the human soul is reunited with the body, and you get Christ in his proper person. But that, that question, I think, illustrates the realism of Christ's presence right now, right now. So that begs the question, what then is the relationship of the Mass to Calvary, right? And the Council of Trent teaches that this is the relation to Calvary, that the same priest who offered the offering at Calvary offers the Mass, namely Christ himself. The same victim who was present at Calvary is present in the Mass, yeah. namely Jesus himself. Okay. And the reason for the offering to, to, uh, to uh, uh, reconcile the world to God is the same in both offerings. But the manner is different, and that includes the, the temporal manner as well. The first was a bloody offering that took place 2,000 years ago. The Mass is an unbloody offering, and they, they mean it ain't the same offering as Calvary. It's connected, it's, uh, 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 Ludwig Ott puts it this way, it is numerically distinct, but specifically the same. Okay. We can talk about the Mass as a distinct oblation taking place right now that, that, uh, that demonstrates, that recapitulates, that exhibits what took place on Calvary, but mm -hmm. in a different manner. All right, uh, Robin Beaverton, Oregon, thanks so much uh, for your email. A quick one from Tom in Pittsburgh. Uh, when there's no recessional hymn after Mass, when is it appropriate to exit your pew and leave Mass? Also, when a funeral is incorporated within a daily Mass with the presence of the deceased ashes in the urn, when is it appropriate to exit your pew and leave when there is no recessional hymn? Yes, thank you so much. So I am not aware of there being a canon that requires your presence at Mass, you know, until the, the, the end of the recessional or the, of the recession of the priest. Uh -huh. um, but I think the sort of common decor would be you wait for the priest to process out. He's going to do that whether or not there's a hymn. Um, have I ever snuck out before Father walked out? Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> All right, there you go. Tom in Pittsburgh, thank you so much for your email. Indeed, lines are filling up right now. We have three lines full, but that means three lines are open for you at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986 for Call to Communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN.
called a communion. Glad that you're with us on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, do you have a summer reading program uh, cooked up for your family, for the kids maybe? Well, we've got some wonderful books at EWTN's Religious Catalog, uh, including this one, Kiss Me Goodnight. It's about the innocent love that a family has for one another. Real to life, rooted in sacred scripture and sacred traditional, this is a book for the ages everlasting. One of the many great summer reading suggestions for kids from EWTN's Religious Catalog. For more information, go to EWTNRC.com today. That's EWTNRC.com. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Susan in Columbus listening on YouTube this afternoon. Hey there, Susan. What's on your mind today? Hello. I am um, thinking about becoming Catholic, but I'm very concerned um, that um, I found out these bishops um, have met yesterday in D.C., and that so many of them are basically the mouthpiece of the Democrat Party, and they don't support life. They are pushing this global warming hope, this they, they're they not standing up against abortion. They're not standing up against this homosexual activity and this transgender nonsense. And it seems like the only bishop that does anything good is uh, strict. Yeah, thanks. I really appreciate the question. Thank you so much. Um, I understand your concerns. Uh, let me have a few things to say about them. So first of all, uh, I myself am a convert to the Catholic Church, and I became Catholic in 2003. And I was raised in a extremely conservative, both theological and political conservative environment in the heart of the Bible Belt in Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, and came into the church with you know, pretty, fairly settled convictions about the way public policy ought to function and maybe what the church's uh, presence in, in public life ought to look like and these kinds of things. Um, it never occurred to me for a second not to become Catholic because some bishop or some group of bishops uh, failed to share my uh, political agenda. That that never crossed my mind for a second, because I, I understand the nature of the Church, the nature of the organism that is the Catholic Church, and the role of the bishop, uh, and, uh, and the identity of the Church as the institution founded by Christ to transmit the faith and the sacraments down through the ages— and none of those things hang on the political ideology or in political engagement of a particular uh, hierarch, right? And so, I look, knowing church history as I do, I recognize that throughout history, there have been bishops all over the place on political and ideological questions. Now, those questions are very different today than they would have been, say, you know, like in the 12th century uh, or the 16th century. But you'll find you know, they, they had their own political controversies, and you'll find bishops lined up on either side of those issues, you know, going back centuries and centuries and centuries. Now, why would you find that? Well, because bishops are human beings, and human beings have a tendency of uh, to take on ideological positions and then to fight for them. And they, you know, some disagreement is allowable about things like that, and people can be flat wrong. Uh, about their political ideology and doesn't stop them from being canonically Catholic um, or, uh, you know, or having a legitimate office in the church. 
So the kinds of things that might get somebody unbishoped, if you were, you can't ever, you can't unordain someone, but you can remove somebody from office, would be things like heresy and schism and gross immorality. And, and the church wouldn't be able to function to 2,000 years across all the nations and cultures and languages of the world if, uh, if they endorsed you know, a particular policy platform and said everybody has to toe the line on that policy platform, no matter how much justice or truth there might be therein. That's just not how the church functions. Um, and, uh, and it's allowable for a Catholic, for example, to think that his or her bishop or his or her pope or his or her priest is a complete nut job. Like that's that you can think that it's okay. I'm not recommending that you think that. I'm not endorsing him. You know, mine certainly isn't. You know, very great guy. But like, there have been crazy bishops and priests and popes down through the centuries, and it's perfectly legitimate to form that judgment. And really, really famous saints and theologians have have done just that, and mm. publicly so, and come out and said, "I think this guy's off his rocker," and you know, we got to have a different point of view. Now, there's a there's a right way of doing that. There's a kind of dignity that we ascribe to the office. And so, like, for example, this radio show would never be the place for me to voice my private opinions about the political conduct of some particular hierarchy. This is not the forum for that, right? But um, but there are fora for that, and there are places where people can do that. And people, according to the dignity of your own position and your expertise and so forth, you actually have a canonical obligation to voice your concerns when you think the pastors are not meeting uh, the needs of their sheep. So, like, all that's compatible with being Catholic. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't want someone to, say, excommunicate me because uh, I took a policy position that they disagreed with. Like, that's not of the essence of the Catholic faith. Um, now, you know, things like sexual morality and abortion, those things are of the essence of the Catholic faith. I don't want to make any mistake there. Uh, but the way we handle them in public policy is different, and, and you don't necessarily have to come down on one side of the political aisle. You, Democrats are allowed to be Catholic. Republicans are allowed to be Catholic, right? Green Party people are allowed to be Catholic. Like we don't make a party identification a requirement to be Catholic. Now, Protestant denominations often don't work that way in practice. They may not say that out loud, but as birds of a feather tend to flock together, that's the way Protestant denominationalism works. And so you typically find social and economic and racial classes sort of clumping together, and they tend to articulate very similar theological and political opinions. And so it's often common in the Protestant world to get groupthink in one particular organization. And uh, and that's, that's kind of uh, is, can be discomforting for Protestants who come into the Catholic Church and realize you mean I have to worship with those people? <laughs> you know, James Joyce said, here comes everybody, right, about the Catholic yeah, Church, right? Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, you, you do actually have to worship with those people, whoever those people are. Now, I, I've, had, um, I've had Democrats tell me, I, I just don't understand how anybody could be a Catholic and be a Republican. And I've had Catholic, but Republicans tell me, I don't see anybody could be a Catholic and be a Democrat. And, uh, and, both of them utterly convinced of the sincerity of their point of view, as consistent as they understand it with the church's teaching. And fortunately, the church has never said, "Well, you just you just can't be Catholic if you belong to that political party." The, the only exception that I could think of would be the church did say that you really can't be a communist, right? You, you well, you can't hold. You might be able to belong to a party, but you can't hold communist dogma which is explicitly atheistic, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, now, as for, you know, which bishops are doing good in the world? You made a statement about that. Only so-and-so is doing any good as a bishop. Um, I would really strongly beg to differ 
right? Strongly beg to differ. So I, I know a lot of bishops <clears throat> who don't make a public stand on on uh, uh, political issues because they want to do good in the world. Sure. Right? Precisely because they want to preach the gospel and administer the sacraments and administer their own diocese and reconcile people to Christ, they recognize that if they make a certain kind of public policy stand, that they will be alienated from the very people they need to reach. So let's let's take somebody, for example, who is privately extremely pro-life and absolutely supportive of the church's regime, right? But decides not to lead with that as like their signature evangelistic point. Well, why would someone make that decision? Just hypothetically. Well, maybe if they're trying to evangelize pro-choice people. Yeah. Maybe if they're trying to reach out to folks and they're like, I don't want to lead with the message that's going to alienate the very people I'm trying to reach, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you might disagree with that judgment, but that's a prudential judgment that a bishop could make. Sure. And there are bishops of exceeding holiness and prayerfulness and piety who who don't make it their goal to, uh, you know, to, to make a spectacle of themselves on social media. Sure. Well, we thank you so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. We do have a couple lines open right now at 833-288-3986. It's called Communion on this Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Let's go from Columbus to Cincinnati and talk with Bill, a first-time caller listening on the great Sacred Heart Radio. Hey there, Bill. What's on your mind today, sir? Well, thank you very much for taking my call, Dr. Anders. I trust you with uh, with whatever you say because you just know a whole lot that I don't. Uh, the uh, the thing is is that I was talking to a person who happens to be homosexual, and they're saying that this Ed Oxford, a Bible scholar, use, takes this Greek word to mean boy molesters, and that the uh, King James version has been quote, recently changed to use the word homosexual instead of boy molester. And I spelled out the uh, Greek word for your for the person that took the call, because I can't pronounce it. But what what's the validity that this person's saying about the Greek word being mistranslated only from the 18th, 1800s on and yet the Catholic version is still says homosexual. Or it doesn't really say homosexual, it says male to male. Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate, uh, appreciate the question. So, um, first of all, the, the translation is not recent. Um, I'm, I'm looking at the Vulgate translation of the Greek text into Latin, which would be from the 4th century, and it basically, to take the Latin, not the Greek, into English would be translated as more or less someone that co- that cohabits with, takes as a concubine, a male, right? Okay. All right. Um, and so to identify that with homosexual, homosexual behavior is not some innovation on the part of the King James Bible. I and mean, this is a traditional understanding of the text going back basically the earliest days of the church. Um, now, you know, I'm not a 
uh, an expert in Koine Greek. I studied Koine Greek in, in seminary, and, you know, that in, uh, you know, about $3 now will buy me a cup of coffee. I mean, like, I'm totally not an expert in Koine Greek. And so I'm not going to stand up here and, and try to do a, a detailed exegesis and, and, you know, pull out a lexical entry and compare the use of this term across a whole bunch of different ancient sources. I don't have that kind of expertise. I could probably go do the work if I wanted to, but I, I had other things to worry about. Um, uh, so I think more to the point, this is obviously a polemical move on the part of the scholar. He's got, he has an agenda. He's trying to legitimate the behavior. And so he's trying to make an argument about the exegesis of a particular Greek word in the New Testament. And th that might have some purchase if you are a fundamentalist Protestant. Like if you think that the way to take your bearings theologically is from the exegesis of a single Greek word. Now, I personally think that's just crazy. I think that is a crazy way to do theology. Uh, our knowledge of Almighty God and His plan for our life and our relationship to Christ and the Church does not hang on the opinions of scholars doing arcane exegesis of single Greek words. That, that's not how it functions. There is a 2,000-year history of Christian interpretation of the sexual morality of the New Testament and of Christian practice, going back to the apostles and well-attested in the fathers and in canon law and in moral theology, that, uh, that says homosexual behavior is not permitted. And it doesn't hang on a single Greek word. It hangs on an analysis of the human person in natural law and 2,000 years of sacred tradition. And I might add, on the larger context of the entire Bible and not just, say, a passage in 1 Timothy 1.10, um, you know, St. Paul in Romans 1, verses 26 and 27, makes it fairly plain that it is people deciding to turn their passions towards, sexual passions towards members of the same sex, uh, that is problematic. I would also add that the, the way we use the term homosexual today in the English language conveys a meaning that does not exist in the ancient world, and that is somebody who has a kind of pervasive personality trait. Right, they have a there's something that's intrinsic to their um, uh, to their arousal mechanism that is indelibly imprinted upon a member of the same sex. That's the way we use the word homosexual. The ancient Greeks and Romans and Jews didn't have that concept. They didn't really think in psychological terms like that. They thought about behaviors, and so they recognize that there are people who do this thing, and that's what they're talking about. They're not mm -hmm. talking about a personality or a personality trait, or a pervasive, uh, you know, uh, 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 arousal pattern, right? Yeah. And the Church does make that distinction today, and is emphatic that to be homosexual in the sense that I have this pervasive orientation in my life, or a person has this pervasive orientation, this arousal pattern in their sexuality, that is morally neutral. And it is not immoral to have an attraction, what the church deals with morally is the choice of behavior that may or may not flow from that. And so you can, you can be a, a fulfilled uh, homosexual person living a chaste Catholic life, and you're not condemned in virtue of being homosexual. Right? The question is, 
What's your behavior? What's your sexual behavior? That's where the church puts the emphasis. Do appreciate your call, and uh, we hope that's helpful for you, Bill. Thank you for checking in from Cincinnati. It's called a communion here on EWTN. Coming up in the next uh, half hour or so, we're going to be talking with Nick in Detroit, also Christian, a first-time caller from California. Scott is a first-time caller from Nova Scotia. Uh, Jim is standing by in uh, McCook, Nebraska. And we've got uh, two lines open at the moment at 833 833- 288-EWTN. If you have a question for Dr. David Andrews, now is the time to call 833-288-3986. Call to communion on this beautiful Friday afternoon here on EWTN. Do stay with us. Glad you're with us. It is called a communion here on EWTN on this Friday afternoon. Very busy phones. We do have one line available right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here is Nick now in Detroit listening on YouTube this afternoon. Hey, Nick, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, David. Um, um, so my question is the magisterium and the Pope's position being so important in the apostolic faith, but the church recognizes the Orthodox Church as being valid, then just flipping it, what is truly our need and what is the significance of the magisterium and the Pope? Yeah, thanks. Uh, Let me clarify a little bit what you said. So there's only one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. They're not two churches. And so it's not like the Catholic Church is a valid church, and then the Orthodox Church is another valid church. That That's not the way the Catholic Church conceives of it. There's one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, um, and uh, it's it's expressed in the unity of the bishops with the Bishop of Rome and their own uh, valid ordination apostolic orders. So when you have a church in schism, what you have is you have bishops and priests with valid orders and sacraments, but not in union with the Pope. And so there's a rupture there in the unity of the one Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. And that that condition goes right to the heart of your question, which is the Pope is the seat of the Church's unity, visibly, publicly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so to be fully one Holy Catholic Apostolic Church, you have to have union with the Bishop of Rome. That, that is the seat, that's the source of the Church's visible unity. He's the Vicar of Christ. And you know, practically... The Orthodox have a hard time kind of pulling it all together, right? So they attempted in 2016, for example, to have their uh, what Great and Holy Orthodox Council and get all of the Orthodox. I think that was probably only the um, Chalcedonian Orthodox. I don't imagine that. I'm not sure about this. If you're Orthodox, you can correct me. But uh, I don't think the Monophysites were invited. Um, but um, uh, they couldn't pull it together. You had any several autocephalous churches bailed because they had disagreements with somebody else about this side or the other thing, and they couldn't they couldn't get it together. Wow. They couldn't get it together. So they, you know, that, that's that's the practical difficulty of, uh, uh, you know, several dozen different autocephalous communities, right? Because there's no fundamental point of unity there. Yeah. Um, and I mean, historically, there are a lot of churches, you know, outside the Byzantine and Chalcedonian tradition that would understand themselves to be Orthodox that are considered by other Orthodox to be heretics, right? I mean, in particular, the, the Monophysites, those that reject the Council of Chalcedon, the Copts, for example, or the Ethiopians. 
Um, and they all lay claim to the mantle of orthodoxy, and there's really no way to adjudicate that dispute. So the Byzantine, Chalcedonian Orthodox say, well, you guys aren't, you're, you're not in the up and up because you didn't accept the Council of Chalcedon. It can't be settled. And, and, and the other, and the, and the Monophysites say, well, you guys aren't on the up and up because you accepted the Council of Chalcedon, which we don't regard as an ecumenical council. And the, you can't get out of that circle. Yeah. There's no way out of that circle unless you have some objective authority that can define this is a valid council, this is not a valid council, and, and the, the Pope plays that function, plays that role. And it's by Christ's institution that that would be the case when he said to St. Peter, you're Peter, on this rock I'll build my church and I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Nick, thanks so much for your call. Let's go to Christian, a first-time caller from California, watching us today on YouTube. Hey, Christian, what's on your mind today, sir? Christian in California, are you there? Okay, let's put uh, Christian back on hold, and we'll get to him in just a moment. Here is Scott now, a first-time caller from Nova Scotia, listening on the EWTN app. Hello, Scott. What's on your mind today, sir? Good afternoon, gentlemen. As my grandfather used to say, a gentleman and a scholar, I think that meets you, you too in description. <laughs> <clears throat> my question is, is there a doctrine, teaching, or theory on the following question? Do holy orders continue or remain with the soul after death? Yes, there is a teaching, and the answer to it is affirmative. So if a priest goes to hell, uh, if, we don't know what's going on in hell, but if, for example, a soul could perceive another soul in hell, they'd go, oh, there goes a priest over there in hell. Uh, a priest is in heaven, people will go, oh, yeah, there's a priest in heaven. Uh, you are a priest forever, to quote the psalm, in the order of Melchizedek. Yes, priesthood is an eternal, uh, indelible mark upon the soul in the same way that baptism is. So there you go. Appreciate that, Scott. Here is Kathy now in Omaha. And uh, let's see here. Kathy is listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Fantastic partner of ours. Kathy, what's on your mind today? Good afternoon, gentlemen. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'll try to make this brief. My mom is a resident at a um, retirement center here in Omaha. And there is somebody from our local church that takes communion to the, um, to the uh, residents like mm -hmm. once or twice a week. And before, uh, she, she did a kind of a big group thing. Well, they've recently started dividing up the assisted living from the, the um, independent living, and the EMHC discovered that some of these individuals were not Catholic, so she decided that she would not give them communion. Well, the activities director came after her and said, you have to give communion to these people. And she said, well, I can't. And she said, well, you have to because the families expect it and want it. And my, she, my mom said that this uh, EMHC is kind of, she's an older lady and she doesn't want to cause a ruckus. Is there anything that would you would recommend that I could do or contact or whatever? This, this is pretty, pretty a strong thing for this uh, activities director to say she has to do this against uh, her faith. Well, well I, I certainly hope that the extraordinary minister of Holy Communion will stick to her resolve and say, you don't understand. This is like this is like asking a Muslim to eat pork, right? Yeah. What you're asking me, this is like asking a Jew to eat pork, what you're telling me. The Catholic doctrine is that it is not safe to give communion to non-Catholics. We are not a denomination. Uh, this is not an open table where anybody that believes they have a sincere faith in Jesus is permitted to come. 
um, that's not sufficient. Having a, a sincere faith in Jesus is not enough. You have to be a member of the Catholic Church who believes what the Catholic Church teaches and who is properly disposed to receive communion in order to receive it safely, and therefore it's irresponsible of the Church to give out communion willy-nilly to any, you know, Tom, Dick, and Harry. Period. And, right. and it's, it's not allowed, and it cannot be done, all right? And if you bar me from coming at all, then you are depriving the Catholics of their own religious right to receive communion according to their consciences, right? And so uh, I, I, if I were in this position, I think I might go to the administration, and I might take a priest with me, a well-formed priest yeah. who, who knows how to articulate the church's position and go, look, we, we really want to be here. We will minister to everybody, but we can only administer the sacraments to Catholics or people that want to become Catholics. Or if someone's in danger of death and they have Catholic faith, then we can also handle that. But, but in most cases, we're not going to be able to give communion. And th this, is a, this is a serious doctrine for Catholics. Now, um, you know, if, if, if these... Uh, residents who are not Catholic want to receive their own communion right, then we need to have a non-Catholic minister come in and do whatever he does or she does or yeah, whatever it may yeah. be. But for Catholics, this is the way it's got to be. And um, and I, I I have I have seen similar problems before. You people get very territorial over the the elderly, and I personally I find it kind of patronizing. Um, and infantilizing. I mean, they have the right to receive the sacraments of their own church according to their own conscience, and and it's not for some activities director, uh, you know, to define that for them. Yeah, is that helpful for you, Kathy? It is. the The EMHC actually said to the activities director, "Well, if you insist on that, then I won't be able to come any longer." Like again, she's an elderly lady and doesn't want to raise a stink. So, so here's my you know. here is my here's my fear. All right. That if um, what I don't want to have happen is I don't want there to be no Catholic who shows up because what the activities director might do is, you know, go down the street and get somebody from the United Church of Christ um, who will come say all kinds of things or, 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 or perhaps maybe, a, maybe a, an Episcopal priest who wears clerics, right? I, I know an Episcopal priest who has been approached by Catholics for sacraments. Because they just see the collar. Sure, and they right? assume, yeah. And, uh, and he doesn't disabuse them. Right, he, he's he's handing them out, handing uh, it out, right? Uh, and so you you know, you, you got to make sure there's a Catholic who's well formed, who's there, and if she stops coming, you got to get somebody else to go, but who'll also stick to their guns, so that the so again, so that the Catholics can have the sacraments according to the dictates of canon law and their own conscience, and not be sold a bill of goods by somebody else. Wow. Uh, Kathy, thank you for your very important phone call. It's called a communion here on EWTN. We do have a couple of lines that dropped, so you're welcome to call right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Hey, you may want to check out EWTN's Podcast Central. One of the great podcasts available for you is Catholic Women Now. It uh, Your hosts, Julie Nelson and Chris Magruder, speak on uh, what's on the hearts and minds of women as if sharing coffee with friends at a coffee shop, covering all things in light of the Catholic faith. Do check it out by going to EWTN's Podcast Central. You can get there by going to EWTNRadio.net ewtnradio.net and look for the button that says podcast. That is all you have to do. Let's go now to Lisette, a first-time caller driving through New Jersey, listening on Sirius XM channel 130. Hey, Lisette, what's on your mind today? 
Hi. Um, I hope you can hear me okay. We're just driving through a, a, a rainstorm uh, yeah. at yes. the moment, but yes, we're listening. We're listening to you on Sirius XM, and um, we had a question. We recently went on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, and observing of the uh, faithful, the Orthodox Jews, and learning of their traditions, and and even being physically present and praying near them and around them. We're just having conversations with the family about trying to reconcile where we differ, sort of how, how in, you know, there are brothers and sisters um, um, in, in Christ, but, you know, up to a certain point, and then we kind of split off and, and trying to help them to understand or help us to understand the the relationship there or how yeah sure I, I think I can speak to that and I really appreciate it so um, the 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 religion of Israel um, according to the law of Moses and the prophets is something that is different both from Christianity and from Judaism so there is a there's a bedrock if you will of Abrahamic faith you know running for a thousand years or more. Uh, to the first century. And by the time you get to the first century, there are lots of different schools of thought about what it means as, a, as a, an inhabitant of Judea in the first century to be standing in uh, continuity with Abraham and Moses and the people of Israel. And one school of thought, just one, one school of thought that emerged, Phariseeism, is what would eventually become modern Judaism. Now, I, I, I want to make this distinction. Modern Jews definitely stand in continuity with the Old Testament because that's the bedrock of their, of their theological reflection and their tradition, but it's the Old Testament as interpreted by the Pharisaical and the Tanaitic and then the rabbinical tradition. And so they bring a set of criteria to interpreting and living that, that Hebrew identity in, in modernity. But Christianity is also grounded in the Old Testament and also comes out of the first century, like modern Judaism comes out of the first century. But its frame of reference for interpreting the Old Testament is the person of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus showed up in Galilee and Judea in the first century, and taught with authority, not as the scribes and teachers of the law, and demonstrated his divine authority by his passion, death, and resurrection, and called disciples to himself in anticipation of the coming kingdom of God, which was a common expectation among all residents of Judea at the time. And he articulated a different way, a fundamentally different way of relating to the Old Testament. And so Christianity grows up in contradistinction to Judaism as another tradition. And so, you know, if you think of, uh, uh, you, think of um, you know, the, the Old Testament and the Hebrew uh, community as the bedrock, and then you see, you know, two, two uh, lines diverging from that in, in not parallel but slightly different directions, you have an image of the relationship of Judaism to Christianity. Both of them grounded in the Abrahamic faith, but interpreting that faith in very different ways, depending on whether it is Christ that is the frame of reference or, or the rabbinical commentary that's the frame of reference. 
Lisette, we think that we hope that is helpful for you, and uh, thank you so much for your call. Here is Chuck now in Southern Mississippi, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey, Chuck, what's on your mind today, sir? Uh, thanks for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a question about like um, civil authority. So we know that, that that we're bound by civil authority. However. Like, and I want to go back to the pandemic is what I was talking with the the, um, the fellow before earlier was was that um, so we were forbid forbidden from going to church or to communion or um, you know to confession or for that matter we didn't have burials baptisms and all that stuff going on actively during the pandemic because the civil authorities said that could. Would the church have been able to say, you know, don't pay attention to that, that, you know, this is more important than the rest of that? Good question. Good question. So let me let me draw a distinction here between what took place during the pandemic and other periods in history when the civil authority says you can't celebrate the Mass. Okay, so during the English Reformation, for example, um, under the reign of Elizabeth I, the English government said that uh, it is illegal to be a Catholic priest in Great Britain. You can't even be a Catholic priest. If, you are, if you are a Catholic priest and we find you on, uh, on English soil, uh, we will execute you with every refinement of torture. And that's what they did. And so, uh, and so um, uh, uh, St. Edmund Campion, for example was put to death with every refinement of torture for being a Catholic priest in England. He was yeah. a Jesuit. Yeah. Um, the, the English government said, you cannot celebrate Mass. You cannot hear confessions. You cannot give out Holy Communion. You certainly can't catechize. Uh, you cannot house a priest in your house. You cannot, you cannot house a private celebration of the Mass or of the sacraments. If you do any of these Catholic things, we will kill you. Guess what the Catholics did? They had Mass. They went to confession. They baptized their children. They had catechesis, and they died for it. And they died for it. Protestants put them to death. Now, um, I think that's different from what happened in the pandemic. Now, you, you, you are permitted to completely disagree with everything that I say right now, okay? But I'm going to give you what I think was the point of view of many bishops, not the civil authority, but as they understood it, the scientific and medical establishment has declared that for the sake of the common good in public health, uh, we should refrain from gathering publicly. And to, uh, to do uh, otherwise would endanger uh, the, the, the common good. And there were times in the church's history when because of plague— the church would not celebrate the Mass with, uh, with a congregation. Um, there are instances of the priests and bishops saying Mass on the streets and instructing the faithful to stay in their homes and apartments and to watch the Mass be celebrated out of their windows, right? So the celebration of the sacraments went on. And of course, in, for most of Catholic Western history, faithful didn't actually receive Holy Communion, so they just had to unite their hearts and minds to the celebration of the sacrament, and they could see the elevation of the host, but they stayed at a distance. And that was done not because the civil authority told them not to have mass, but because they were trying to take care of everybody and not spread a plague. 
And I think in the minds of many bishops, that was the analogy. Now, the fact that there was also a, a statute on the law books that said, well, you know, a statute in the law books may be exaggeration, but a, some sort of ordinance came down mm-hmm. that you can't gather publicly, they may have also complied for those reasons. Um, now, um, uh, so I think that's the situation. Now, did they do right? Did they do wrong? I'm not going to comment on any of that, all right? Just that I think the context and the decision-making was different. So those that refrained from public gatherings, they never, they never stopped celebrating the sacraments, but they, they did, in many cases, refrain from doing it publicly. Uh, um, it wasn't just because the church had violated them to disobey their consciences and they said, sir, yes, sir, and went along, right? Now, that could happen. That could happen. The, church, the government might tell the church to do something that violated the conscience of the bishop, and the bishop might cave out of cowardice. In which case, that would be a sin, right? You can't ever violate conscience. You can't ever violate conscience. And so if the civil government ever tells you to do something that violates conscience, then you have to disobey the civil government. Chuck, thanks so much uh, for your call. Let's go to Renee in Fairfax, Virginia, listening on the great Guadalupe Radio. Hey there, Renee, what's on your mind today? Hi there. Thank you so much for taking my call. Mm-hmm. And I've been trying to rectify something in my mind. Um the concept of of in the in eternal life of being no sense of time, and then also purgatory where souls are, and when they are released from purgatory and can enter the beatific vision, then just by saying the word when they are released from purgatory. It kind of indicates to me that there's time. There's a time period. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're completely correct. Absolutely, there's time in purgatory. Yes. So first of all, we don't ever share God's eternity. The the human person will never enter into God's eternity. Um, uh, We scholastic theologians drew a distinction. They said there's the temporal life that we have here. There's the eternal, unchanging life of God. And then there is a kind of middle condition that they called avaternity, A-E-V, avaternity. Mm. And uh, that is the condition of the blessed in heaven, the souls in purgatory, and the angels. And so there is a kind of temporal succession, but it's different from the temporal succession that we have on earth. Now, they didn't know about relativity, mm-hmm. but we can put it in terms of modern relativity. We know that our experience of time is connected to the space-time continuum. Um, and, uh, of course, there's no, there's no bodily extension until the, doctrine, until the resurrection. And so the, the, the angels in heaven and the soul in purgatory lacks a physical form. And so you can't have time in the same way that we have time on earth, mm-hmm. but there's something analogous. There is a kind of, there is a kind of succession uh, mm-hmm. that they call a eternity. And when the resurrection takes place, of course, we will have physical bodies, which means we'll be back in the space-time continuum, and so it's more proper to speak about the next life as life everlasting rather than eternal life. Okay. Uh, Gary Lagrange, the great neo-scholastic theologian, has a book about the four last things entitled Life Everlasting, not Eternal Life. Okay, very good. And uh, Renee, thanks for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Julie is in Rochester, Minnesota, listening on the great Real Presence Radio. Julie, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I kind of have a follow-up to a previous call about um, orthodoxy, um, not being in communion with each other and with the Pope. 
Um, I'm curious how, without that, how has orthodoxy in the last thousand years not split as drastically as Protestantism has in the last 500? Okay, thanks. I really appreciate the question. So orthodoxy has split. It has split. Um, I think there are at least 14 autocephalous uh, uh, Chalcedonian Orthodox churches, plus the Assyrians, uh, plus the Copts and the Ethiopians, depending on how you want to count them. So they have significant um, uh, jurisdictional and theological uh, distinctions within them. And even within uh, even within a particular family of Orthodox churches, you, you have other splits. I mean, you have the Russian Orthodox Church, and then you have the Orthodox Church outside of Russia, and yeah. I mean, and you, I mean, so they, they they do split, and even internal to a particular jurisdiction, they they have a history of uh, of of controversy and sometimes quite heated and bloody controversy. So so th- there is definitely diversity and antagonism within the Orthodox world, as there is within the Catholic. I don't want to let the Catholics off, you know, uh, completely innocent here. And we've had we have our own share of internal controversies as well. We have a way of resolving them, right, in the yes. person of the Pope. Sometimes the Church leaves them unresolved on purpose. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, I'm thinking about the Jansenist uh, controversy in the 18th century in France, where nation of France, the Catholic population, was split right down the middle over the question of Jansenism. And one was a pretty anti-papal group, and the other was, you know, pro-papal, and um, and eventually the Church came down and condemned Jansenism as a heresy. But there is division there. But I do think your basic point is correct, that there's less division in Orthodoxy than there is in Protestantism, because Orthodoxy recognizes uh, the principle of sacred tradition. Julie, thanks for your call. Rod, uh, driving through Illinois, we have about 30 seconds. What's your question today, Rod? <laughs> uh, thanks for taking my call. I appreciate the knowledge you have. Um, the question is, do Lutherans have um, valid orders? Nope. Uh, nope. No valid orders. Alrighty. I didn't think so, but I want to make sure. Yep. No Good. orders. Very good. And one more quickie here from Jim in Portland, Oregon. And uh, Jim, what is your question? We have just a few seconds here left. Is there any vestiges of uh, Celtic Rite Catholicism uh, left in Ireland? I, my understanding is in the mid-19th century it went from Celtic Rite to Roman Rite. Um, uh, that is a good question. Not that I'm aware of. Okay. That's where we have to leave it, Jim. Thanks so much for your call. Uh, for everybody who tried to get through, uh, please join us again next week at this same time, 2 p.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN. And then, of course, we encore the program at 11 p.m. Eastern. Dr. David Andrews, have a great weekend. Thanks, Tom. Don't forget, you can check out the podcast over the weekend or anytime you wish by going to EWTNradio.net EWTNradio.net. On behalf of our fantastic team, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders, and we hope that you have a great weekend as well. See you here on Monday on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a great one. God bless. God bless.